Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. My practice specializes in providing fact-based strategic and risk management advice to clients that are buying, selling, or growing the value of their companies and intellectual property. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also recently launched a new LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. So please join that as well if you'd like to engage. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is Should I Pursue Impact Investing? And According to SG Analytics, the impact investing market as of earlier this year, I'm sorry, late last year was $715 billion. And um, you can question what is impact investing. And in fact, we will. And those of you who are veterans of listening to this podcast know that we try to set our definitions early so that we know exactly what it is that we're talking about. But, you know, we, I think <clears throat> with a number of forces that are converging as we record this podcast on January 27th, 2022, the, 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 I think there's renewed interest. And indeed, I think we'd find there's data that demonstrates there's a lot of renewed interest in so-called impact investing. Um, between, between a renewed social reckoning in the United States on race, um, between or, or considering the sharp polarization of our political system. And people say that it's been this bad before. I don't think that I agree. I think, I think it is worse and I think it's being made worse because social media gives everybody a voice and not everybody should have one. Um, but that's a different, that's a different philosophical topic. Um, and, and, you know, in addition, the pandemic itself has, has forced us on mass and has led us as individuals to reevaluate our lives and our relationships, whether they're personal relationships, whether they're work relationships, something else. Many of us are now, are now prompted to, and perhaps given the courage to abandon relationships or sources of energy in our lives that frankly have become, or maybe had long since been toxic but we're now realizing just how toxic they were. And behind this whole backdrop, there's this whole thing called climate change. And, and you know, I'm not going to debate whether or not climate change is real or not. Cards on the table, I do believe that it's real. Um, 
uh, I, and I believe that it's real in, you know, in large part, not because of what I observe, not even because supposedly 97% of scientists, quote unquote, four out of five dentists, whatever it is, say that climate change is real. It, it, it's really because I understand the math. And I'm, I'm fortunate that a dear friend of mine who's a tenured professor of environmental policy at Emory showed me the math. And I understand how the math works. I understand not everybody else does. If you haven't taken advanced calculus and statistics, you're not going to understand the math. You just don't. But to me, I understand it as a matter of math. But I'm not going to try to convince anybody. And frankly, if you think the climate change is bunk, you probably aren't listening to this episode or you won't be for very long. So I don't think this is, I don't think this is the debate that we need to carry here. Um, and you know where to find me on social media if you think that I'm a tree-hugging communist. Um, but for the rest of us who are still here, impact investing is a thing. And there's renewed interest in it. And, and the thing that I find so compelling about, about impact investing is, is you know, capitalism is uh, an economic system that is capable of accomplishing tremendous things. But it is also not perfect. We have not found a perfect economic system. I'm not advocating for it or one another. But man, when capitalism gets behind solving a problem, it freaking gets fixed. And, and there are ample, there's ample evidence that I, can, that I can point to. But also when, when capitalism gets behind creating a problem, that problem is also amplified, magnified, and scaled up very quickly, right? So it's like a power tool. Um, a, a chainsaw is great to cut wood, but I wouldn't recommend it to use on your own kneecaps. So to help us understand and think about impact investing and whether or not impact investing is a model that you should consider, whether it's in a portfolio, whether it's making corporate investments, venture investments, uh, I'm going to introduce a, a friend of mine, a really cool cat, Mark Hubbard, who I've known for, we've known for longer than I think either of us would care to admit. Neither of us had gray hair. That's how long ago we've known each other. Um, and and before I before I get into this, I want to offer a very important disclaimer: is that we are going to talk about investing today, but in doing so, we are not making any kind of investment recommendation, whether or not you should or should not make an investment of any kind. Stuff it under your mattress, Bitcoin, NFT, Russian rubles—I don't care, right? So before you make any kind of investment decision. Uh, consult somebody who knows what they're doing, preferably somebody that you're paying for their advice so that if they screw up, you can sue them. Um, but, but you know, get an adult to actually give you that advice. You're just listening to a couple of old white dudes talking. And if you're going to make an investment based on, on a couple of dudes you don't know on the internet, that's on you. So by listening further, that is a disclaimer that you are now accepting. Somewhere, some lawyer just had a heart attack, but it's all right. Um, Mark Hubbard is joining us for today's program. He's general partner of Renew Venture Capital and CEO of Pixel Recess, a design and venture studio. Mark has founded, invested in, or mentored thousands of enterprises from startups to global corporations and is almost 30 years in venture capital, global private equity, and institutional asset management. He has directed billions of dollars of capital, launched one of China's most successful asset management JV. I forgot about that. I remembered when you did that. Founded a global private equity firm and built innovation centers for cities and states. He has spent decades deeply immersed in the impact space since long before it was called that, long before it was a thing. Back then it was called tree hugging, I think. 
on both the founding and funding sides of the table and has led on the forefront of the integration of faith, theology, philosophy, and investing. Mark's father was a theater professor. Everyone in his family is or has been a teacher. And he grew up as an actor and musician. And in fact, Mark having a guitar in his office led me to have a keyboard in mine. Um, so the, he's had that influence. He started college as a chemistry and classical guitar major and graduated with a finance and environmental science degree along with all his Wall Street licenses. Art, science, math and beauty, service and commerce for him all are inextricably intertwined. Buckle your seatbelts, everybody. This is going to be an interesting one. Mark Hubbard, welcome to the Decision Vision podcast. Thank you so much. So I, I have guitars in the background of my picture that you all can't see. And you've got keyboards in the back of yours. So I say we scrap all this and let's just play some music. You know what? That's true. Fire it up. In fact, I was just talking to a friend of mine. We were in a band, uh, BC before COVID uh -huh. and, you know, neither of us are playing out right now, especially during the cold weather. And we're kind of, you know, when do we get back to it? And, you know, as a, as a performing as semi-professional musician, when you don't have somebody to perform for it, you know, you let things lapse. I don't even know if I can turn the damn thing on right now, <laughs> let alone actually plan, not hurt myself. Yeah, me too. I haven't played in a while. Well, first of all, just l l let me say that we have known each other for a long time. And I think you just proved this through your introduction. But, um, you you know, you're maybe the smartest person I know, but you're also, you know, kind and curious and thoughtful. And so um, you know, it's an honor to be here and, uh, and talk about this topic in particular with you. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming on the Decision Vision podcast. <laughs> I think that's all we need out of them. That's now, what you, that, did, I, did I do that the way you wanted me to? Yes, you did. Yes, okay, you did. Good. Yes, you, you'll find the token in your crypto account at the end of the day, <laughs> in your e-wallet at the end of the day. Okay, good. Whew. Um, all right. So, you know, I, I let off I let off with a topic, with a notion that uh, I'd like you to help us out with, mm -hmm. and that is impact investing. Yeah, I, I didn't, I don't start off with this, the stupid, you know, Oxford dictionary defines impact investing as da di da di da. How uncreative is that? But I would like to know how somebody like you who actually puts capital to work in impact investing, how do you define it? Oh boy. All right. Well, for, you know, I mean, I think it makes sense to go first back to the trend that you mentioned, um, certainly coming out of the, well, out in quotes of the pandemic. Um, uh, we have had people make this reassessment, right, about their their lives and relationships and their work. And I've heard you say things about it, right? Like you, you'd like to be able to talk about basketball without feeling like you're on the clock as an accountant. Yep. And um, and yet that's really part of a larger trend, right? That's been going on for probably twenty or thirty years, or you know maybe even more. Where when I, you know, as an old man, when I was growing up, what I was told or, you know, just sort of in, in general by society is that you sort of tried to live a two pocket life, right? The first time I heard this was really from maybe Kevin Doyle Jones, um, where if you went to see a really successful rich person and you wanted to talk to them about something like impact investing, they would say, why, in, I, I don't, I don't invest in companies that are trying to do good. What in the world does that even mean? I have two pockets. I have one pocket that I put all the money in the world into. And then I have a pocket that I give to you know, my taxes and I give to nonprofits and they can do the good in the world. And, and those two things don't cross over. Right. So like relationship, George and independent George, like those, two, those two things don't meet each other. And that's very much from the Chicago school, right? That's a very Friedman, Friedmanian. It's, it's all, all, of it, all the bad stuff approach. goes back to Friedman. Yep. Yep. That's right. <laughs> in, in, in general. And so, uh, um, you know, people just don't want to live that way anymore. They don't, they want more integrated 
lives than that. They don't think that's necessary. Uh, um, I mean, that's a value system that was sort of, you know, foisted on them and, and they don't feel like they need to live that way anymore. And if you're not going to live that way, then part of the way that you express who you are is through your work and where you spend your time. And, and part of the way you express who you are is with your money. Um, and so that's been a big driver over the last 10 to 15 years in the impact investing space is that larger trend of folks saying, I'm, I'm not interested in bifurcating things anymore. I want to figure out how I can, you know, the old mantra is do, do, do well and do good. I just, I want to figure out how, how I can live my life as integrated as possible so that everything expresses what I say, I believe. Is, is impact investing synonymous with, with the ESG environmentability, sustainability, and governance? Is it, a, is one a subset of the other? Yeah, <clears throat> Are those two yeah. interchangeable? How, how do those two concepts fit or not fit? Yeah, here's the problem. <laughs> it's that impact investing sort of isn't a thing um, in a way, right? N none of these, none of the things that you'll hear said uh, um, commonly in any parts of the market have all that great of a definition in and of themselves, and they all really fit on a spectrum. So if you want me to, I can sort of lay out what the spectrum looks like, if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, I, do. Uh, I actually do, yes. Okay, so, so on one end, you sort of have Milton Friedman land, right? Where the business of business is business. Yep. Where, where, where all, all, all that matters is money. All that matters is shareholder return, right? Like a, a business is really just there to, to do business, make money. Uh, um, that causes you to push off all kinds of externalities, right? Environment being one of them, but all kinds of things, right? Because what matters the most is, is, is yield. Um, and that still exists. There's still people who run businesses that way. We think that way. We think that's the way things should be. That's sort of on one end of the spectrum. Um, the next step up sort of is CSR, right? That's what a lot of people talked about for a long time, corporate social responsibility. Um, really, the idea of CSR was how do, I, how do I look at the business we're running and limit the damage we do, right? So not so much proactive good, but how do I make sure we limit damage? Um, right above that, I'd say is ESG, okay, which you mentioned. Okay. So ESG is environmental, social, and governance, which is sort of a mix of those two of, of you know, limit damage and do good. Right. Like you find proactive ways in those three categories to adjust your business, the governance of your business, the policies of your business, the way you engage with suppliers, the way you engage with employees. Right. So that you can address those three big categories. That ESG piece is the biggest part of what you think of as the impact investing world right now. Right. Because that's really the only kind of thing you can do to apply to public markets, which are so much bigger. Right? And and, um, and so when you apply that lens to public markets, that's where you know, most impact investing, quote unquote, money comes from. And if you, if you include that, um, it's something like a $40 trillion market right now. So it's, so it's massive. And you know, what, what I find fascinating about ESG is <clears throat> that how the G, the, the, the G isn't something that people I think think about as much, you know, I think I, you know, governance is governance is a lot like an umpire, right? You, you, the, you know governance is doing its job when you barely notice it's even there. It's when it really screws up and blows that call at home plate <laughs> that you notice that it's that it's there and it's doing a bad thing. And um, uh, and I think that's probably why I find it fascinating because because it's so subtle. I think you can make an argument that it has as pervasive an impact. Getting back to that term, as the E and the G and the E and the S part of it. Because without the right governance, it just undermines so much of the other things that you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it just if you just think in sort of two two categories of that governance, uh, or let's say three, right? Board composition, uh, executive compensation, right? 
and corporate policies. Yep. Well, I don't, that determines all of the rest of everything. <laughs> those those three things. And, and those are all governance issues. Um, and so that's really the biggest part of the market. There's sort of a step above that, which they call stakeholder capitalism, right? Which is yep. trying to say, you know, businesses, workers, customers, communities, environment, and shareholders, that there's those five stakeholders. And that when you're on the business, you sort of have to balance the interests of those stakeholders as you do it. You don't just always defer to, to the shareholders. Yep. Um, and then above that is what I call impact investment, which is companies that are intentionally and actively doing good, right? Built into the business model. I mean, really there's two kinds. There's sort of bolt-ons like the Tom Shoes of the world, right? Where you yep. say, I'm going to, you know, make you sell one and give one and that's fine and all. And, you know, those businesses made some progress in the marketplace, but the, the interesting ones are the ones where it's baked into the business model. So the bigger the company gets, the more profitable the company gets, the more impact it does in the world. Um, those are really the ones that, you know, certainly the ones we're looking for and the ones that I think are the most interesting. So I'm going to ask the question now. I'm sure you've been asked many times, and, and it's, it may be the one question most of our listeners care about. So I'm going to get it out of the way. So if people want to stop listening, they can do something else. Um, and that is the the most the most common perception about impact investing is that by definition, you therefore must be sacrificing financial return. Is that true? Um, so I'll be controversial. <laughs> Please do. Here, I think um, it's only the internet. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, number one, it's no, that's not true. I mean, there's no data to support that really whatsoever. Um, uh, all of the data you can look at, I mean, and there's, you know, tons and tons and tons of it now just go through McKinsey's website alone. <laughs> um, all says that, that, um, that, well, if you look at ESG, right, that ESG performers have, they grow faster and they have higher valuations. <laughs> they, um, have lower costs. Um, there's data about women run companies outperform women investors outperform yep. right? immigrant run companies outperform. Uh, um, uh, no, it's just, it's just not true. In fact, what the generalized data will tell you is that you get better risk adjusted, right? Rates of return. If you, um, if you are sensitive to these issues, right? If you use this as a lens. Um, now the challenge for me is the controversial part is I don't, and look, everything I'm about is generating those returns. So it's not like I don't care in that way. But in the same time, I sort of don't care. Like for me, there's also a right thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and that's part of this. I mean, look that, you know, the idea that we have this idea sort of in culture right now that, right. You, that, that you can't, nobody should make exclusive claims to truth, right. That, you know, if you make an unprovable exclusive claim to truth, that's what's wrong with society. That's your right. philosophy background right there, man. I, right. I love that. Which, which I don't know is fine. And sometimes that's true. I mean, make, make that claim. The challenge is that's an exclusive, unprovable claim to truth. And you just said nobody else could do it, but you can. Um, and so there's this idea that risk adjusted return, right, is the only thing that matters. And that even I have to put the good parts into a risk adjusted return model, right? <laughs> that that's the only thing that matters. Uh, um, but that's an unprovable assertion of values that making more money is what makes you happy and is the only thing that matters. And so um, I just don't know that that, I mean, that value system doesn't match with mine necessarily, um, even though all of the numbers will say, yes, you'll actually do better if you impact invest. Right. So, um, and so let me ask you, let me, let me run a hypothesis behind by you. And I'd like you to tell me if you think there's a val val um, validity to it, or if you think it's full of crap. And that is that 
I think I think now there's a particular differentiator now with uh, impact investing in that I wonder if impact investing is going to provide companies with two advantages. Number one, I think it will enable them to attract the best talent, um, particularly young talent. You know, we're we're both Generation X. We're we're still in that puritanical for the most part as a generation. We're still the keep your mouth shut, do your job. We're kind of the last of that generation, right? But the generations behind us are like, no, man, you shut up because <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll go independent. I'll work for somebody else or whatever, right? So if you're going to attract the best talent, you know, once once people like you and I start to age, like you and me start to age out, that's going to be a problem if if you don't kind of adapt to that. And the second, and this is a, this is a, a concept that was posited to me by uh, another friend who was um, uh, who was on the podcast actually, and he suggested if you want to build, if you want to build resiliency in your company, take away one of their resources for a while, make them play left-handed, right? With the notion being that that you you it forces you to become better if you have restraints, if you have restraints and bumpers and guardrails, right? And so can, I wonder now, can the restraints and bumpers and guardrails of of impact investing actually force you to become a better company because you can't be as frankly as intellectually lazy yeah so i'll, I'll answer i guess in the context of what i'm doing with my my life right it, it, um so we have a venture capital firm we're raising and deploying capital uh, um and we really do it under two themes right and the first thesis is what you just mentioned is that look impact companies that want to be big companies that some some of the best founders in this generation coming up right are going to be founders who want good for the world deeply integrated into what they do right and they're going to need to be able to attract the best talent uh, um and they're going to they're going to need to run through walls like all founders do right and when you look at all of the things that make a founder successful uh you get more of them out of an impact focused founder than you get out of anybody else that yeah 70 percent of people say they want sort of mission related in their work and 15 percent of them say they feel like they they have it uh, um and so an impact founder will will run through walls because they're committed to mission right in a way that people who are only committed to money won't yep. um and and by the way since it's a relatively underserved market there'll be opportunity there right that that other people don't run after the the other theme we follow is the other thesis is that um uh, you know investing in women founders and historically excluded founders um is really the biggest mistake that vcs made the the lack of investment in that world yeah, um uh and, and that it continues now and that that's all about look success in venture capital is all about tams right it's all about can i see a market a total addressable market um that other people can't see and when you look at all the big successes of the last couple of decades, when you look at Uber and you look at Airbnb, right? The the real the real magic in those is that there were TAMs there that nobody saw, nobody knew were possible. And so if you have a whole class of people, <laughs> these giant groups of people, where arguably, you know, uh, um, genius is <laughs> is equally distributed among, uh, um, uh, they're going to be able to see all kinds of markets that the rest of us won't. Uh, um, and that's where you produce success is by finding those kinds of opportunities. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of it makes sense. Now, the nice thing for us is I don't have to play in the big ESG complicated public markets world. Mm -hmm. I can just say, I'm just going to select the best companies we can find, right. That happen to fit this opportunity set. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think the best exemplar of that 
not that I think he's flawless. I think he's highly flawed, but Elon Musk, I think is exemplary of that with electric vehicles. You know, the, the electric vehicle was, was considered, you know, very much a fringe product, a compliance product. I was an early adopter, um, but most people weren't, and I get it. Now, everybody's bringing electric cars to the market. They've gone to being from 10 years ago, less than a half percent of the fleet, now to about three to four percent. And, and you know, probably, I, I would guess, I think in about 10, 15 years, you will not be able to buy an internal combustion engine car in the United States because no, nobody except for like big time gearheads are going to want them. But Elon Musk, for all his flaws, and boy, he has a lot of them. Um, you know, he he's an example of a guy who saw that market a long time before anybody else did. Yeah, well, it's also an example of what you said earlier that, you know, business and markets are much larger than government, right? Action. Yep. And they're like an order of magnitude, I mean, several orders of magnitude larger than philanthropy, right? And so if we're going to address some of these big societal challenges, we have to do it through business and markets. It's the only way you can achieve the scale. And by the way, you know, businesses also have a way of sort of webbing their way, right? Throughout all of life and all of activity in a way that those other two, you know, issues can't, good and bad, right? And that's how you actually end up changing systems at scale. And that, you know, I want to expand upon that because that segues into the next question that I think is so important. You know, um, uh, uh, conscious capitalism, if you will, is a model for accomplishing this, but it's not the only model for accomplishing this. Somebody would argue, a Marxist would argue that government should be in charge of making this happen because you basically, you effectively have streamlined decision-making you collect taxes from people and then they can decide they're going to have all the data and then they can decide in whatever wisdom they have that they're going to, they're going to make five or six things happen with all that capital because they can just, they have that leverage. Um, and then there's another, maybe it might be a, a quasi libertarian model where let nonprofits deal with this, right? Let a, let a market for nonprofits evolve from this. Let social capital find those nonprofits and let the market settle that way, right? So you've chosen this particular model. You've chosen capitalism as the engine for this. Why do you believe that it's a better tool than the other two that I mentioned? All right. So why do I believe it's better than Marxism? Let's see. Let's just let's start with that. Uh, yeah, no, and the funny thing is, actually, the other side, the libertarian version of that, right, is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yep. Right. Uh, um, and they're amazing, and nothing against you know any of that. But but the the other idea is that idea that you concentrate as much wealth in the hands of the smartest people, right, quote yep. unquote, and then they decide, right, like the Aspen Institute decides, and like the most yep. you get the most powerful people basically judged by how much money they have t together. And, um, and it's another version of that same thing, right? It's the capitalistic version of this is the group of people that will know best and they're the ones with the resources anyway, and let them make the decisions about what happens next for everybody, right? The Ayn Randian yep. model. Uh, um, and so, um, uh, uh, yeah, look, uh, anything that ends up producing good is a, is a good thing. Like I'm a fan of, and and I'd love to make that happen. And they all, in all parts of the marketplace, right? As any, as with any ecosystem, those players serve different pieces of the marketplace. Yep. Um, none of them can uh, meet the level of need that we have, right? Without involving 
business, right? Uh, um, it's just not possible. It's not going to happen. Uh, even just in the terms of climate change, like it's, it's, we're not going to out only outregulate ourselves right to it. Uh, um, uh, so, so none of them can, uh, uh, can accomplish what we need to have happen. Uh, um, and frankly, uh, people are going to be founding businesses and running them anyway. And those businesses are going to be having an impact anyway, and your money is going to be invested in having an impact anyway. And so I can be unconscious about that. Right. And unstrategic about it, or I can decide that, that this is the, this is my lane and this is where, where I'm going to direct all of that activity and power and leverage action right into something that reflects what I think I care about in the direction I think the world should head. So you're in a position where you're, you're committing, you know, grown up levels of capital to, to these kinds of opportunities. And I, I'm kind of putting myself in your seat for a second. And by the way, awesome seat, but, um, but, it, it must be, it must make due diligence a bit more complicated because it, it must add at least one more dimension to what you're, to what you're analyzing. And then also complicates your own governance, if you will, monitoring your investment, because it's, it's not just now about, about financials, but also impact. However, we define that. I want to come back to that in a minute, but it, it, that's that I would imagine it's gotta be true. Uh, yeah, and really, frankly, more true than you could possibly even know, right? Because the the uh, evaluate evaluate. I set off Siri. I think evaluating yes. um, financial metrics, right? Seems like it's a super easy, straightforward thing to do. I'll argue. You know, sometimes I'll argue whether that's the case yeah. in things like business valuation, for instance. Yeah. Uh, um, <clears throat> but a lot of what we're talking about are some of the things are absolutely quantitative, right? And you can figure out quantitative things like um, uh, carbon output and, you know, those, those kinds of issues, but a lot of it is quantitative. I mean, qualitative, right? Not quantitative. And the qualitative stuff's hard to, it's hard to define. Number one, wait, that's a, that's a rough start. Then, yep. then it's, then it's hard, hard to measure. Right. And, and then it's hard to measure what the impact of the measurement is anyway. Right. Like that's a complicated thing. I, pu I pulled this one quote in case you ask this, this question. It, it comes from a, um, at, at the end of last year, some GPs got together. So some fun, fund managers who are running money, doing the kind of thing I do, trying to figure out how they also report to LPs, right, on impact. They decided to start making their own. Right. So they're going to start reporting on metrics in uh, scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions, uh, renewable energy, board diversity, work related injuries, new hires and employee engagement. So they're going to make up a metric. But here's what the next sentence is. These metrics borrow from existing ESG measure, measurement frameworks in, uh, created by CDP, CDSB, GRI, SASB, TCFD, and others, and broadly aligned with stakeholder capitalism metrics introduced in September by the World Economic Forum. Uh, uh, I totally get it now. So I know <laughs> there is no language. Like there's no common language. There is no common metric. It's not like, it's not like you just decide we're going to do it in dollars. Uh, uh, um, it's across the board. And by default, what people tend to do often is say, well, I'll just, we'll make up our own rubric. Like we'll, we'll come up with our own, our own way to approach all of this. And so, yes, there's a level of complexity sort of beyond just uh, um, deciding whether the financials look good and the market's big enough um, that we have to evaluate and believe in because we're committed to that mission too. Uh, um, but when it comes to reporting, yeah, it's a nightmare and it's a nightmare for everybody. And I don't know that it will ever, I don't think it probably will ever be solved. There's too many people in positions of power who make money <laughs> off of it being complicated. Yeah. I, you know, I, you know, my, my field of accounting is discussing 
Yeah, there's a there's a need, and frankly, I think a great market opportunity for audit firms to figure out how to measure and independently report impact, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, eventually, we're going to solve that. As is often the case in accounting, we don't address these issues nearly as quickly and as uh, robustly as I think we need to or could. But it's it's definitely on it's definitely on the uh, on the radar screen there. Yeah, I mean, and then well, you know, it's look- funny. Go ahead. I was just even in even in business valuation, right? So that's you're the king of all things business valuation. So how how do you decide the value of a business? So you tell me the quick and dirty. Uh well, oh boy. So uh, all right. So you're interviewing me. That's fine. So the um, so I have to start with a definition of what a, what I think a business value is. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit different than what most people will tell you it is. To me, a business valuation is a prediction of the most frequently occurring price that would occur if an asset were traded back and forth a thousand times within five seconds. Right. It's not, it, so it's a point estimate yep. that tries to mimic what would happen in, in a random distribution, which would probably be a bell curve or a log normal distribution. Okay. Right. How do I do that? I input, uh, I take a bunch of information. I triangulate it with one another at the end of the day, I sprinkle what's called my informed professional judgment, and I produce an appraisal, which is my my personal conclusion of value. So there is a, I mean, the the so the point is right that there is an art in there that isn't science. There's some oh, yeah. layer. There's some layer of that that change that you know fundamentally affects the equation. It goes back to the old. Oh yeah. You, know, you, can, you can value a business. You look at all the numbers. You come up with the, and then you ask, well, what's it worth? Well, I don't. It's worth whatever anybody will pay, and so. So as you said, right, it's, it's, you try to figure out the, any, what any, but what somebody would pay piece, but there's art in that. Like there's, there's, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, that, that's that's why I'm science. not a website. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if, if we're all s- equations, right. I would, there would be no job for me. It would be a, you pay 50 bucks and get your valuation off a website. Right. So it's the same. So the same thing is true, frankly, in the investment world, right? Like the same, those same kinds of rules apply. Like we like to pretend like it's all easy to evaluate just based on the numbers. And the truth is all, all of it is art. What makes the difference? What creates alpha? I mean, you can index everything and that's fine, but yep. what creates alpha is insight and art um, that doesn't just exist in the, in the numbers. Right. And it has to, again, because if, if it did exist in the numbers, everybody would know it. <laughs> the right. program traders would have already figured out and the alpha goes away. Right. So it's self-defeating. Right. Which is going to be true in impact metrics. There'll be some irreducible aspect of that across the board, no matter how much you've tried to figure out how to standardize it. And frankly, although there's tons of energy around the idea that we want to standardize, all of the energy is associated with how do I create my own group to standardize it? So So let me ask a very cynical, but I think fair question. And that is, you know, as you as a decision maker on, on behalf of capital, how do you tell or how do you make a determination and admitting that this is going to be, of course, and again, your informed professional judgment, but what do you consider when making a determination as to whether or not an advertised impact is legitimate as opposed to simply pro forma, right? And, and I, you know, liken it to the old term greenwashing. All right. Here's how, where how, I, do you, how do you, what, what is your bullshit detector for that look like? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's where, you know, I get to punt a little bit um, in that that's, that's particularly applicable to, well, it's, a, it's particularly applicable to nonprofits. Yep. Right, which which we don't really play in, and it's particularly ap- applicable to the public markets, where things are ridiculously complex, 
right? Where, where an impact report that a company puts out itself, right? Without even any audit is 200 pages. Yep. <laughs> and, yep. uh, uh, um, and so trying to figure out in the context of a giant, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar public corporation, what's real and what's not real, what's washing and what's not washing um, is incredibly complex. And yes, there are consulting firms that do very, very, very well, right? Being on any particular side of that, helping them prove, evaluating whether or not that's true, right? All, yep. all of that stuff. Um, I don't have to do that because I'm just picking companies to invest in at early stage. Okay. In an early stage, things are a whole lot less complicated. Okay. Right. Um, and so we're on the impact side. We're really on both sides. We're, we're really just making what would be traditional venture capital investment decisions. What we're picking, right, are companies where the impact is webbed into what they do so thoroughly that as that market gets achieved, as, as they continue to grow, it can't help but have an impact, right? So, um, I mean, I can give you an example. So, we have an uh, an ag tech company um, that does these containerized farming systems, and and so uh, uh, all he's trying to do is build a giant company of distributed farms right across the country. Um, within that, because of that, a, a natural byproduct of operating that business, right, are things that address food deserts, are things that address climate change, yep, uh, uh, um, right, are things that uh, address, water conservation, you know, e- e- economic mobility. Right. There's there are. And, and so the bigger that company gets, the more those impacts happen. Uh, um, that's pretty cut and dried. Right. That's not particularly complicated. Now, measuring it is and figuring out how you talk about it is. But but making the decision about whether or not you in, invest in that is an investment decision around the business, not so much around that provable impact piece, because it's part of what they do. Do, do you find that it's harder, easier about the same to source viable investment opportunities when you have the impact filter as opposed to being unfiltered where you can invest in tobacco and, 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 you know, toxic sludge and everything else. Right. Right. I don't say it's a really interesting question where the answer is, it depends on what you mean by, by filter. Right. Because, because, um, uh, uh, look, my job is to look for opportunity where others don't see it. And that's aided if you have some limitations like you talked about before. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and that's the thing I, I can see the argument both ways, right? On the one hand, if you open the door and say, you know what, I'm, I'm open to investing in any, any reasonable business opportunity, right? That means a lot of stuff comes to the door, but you also are going to have a lot of competitors who want that same stuff walking through the door. Um, and there's, there's much less to differentiate you. On the other hand, you say, I'm Mark Hubbard and I'm an in, impact investor, right? Okay. Well, you know, I sell tobacco to children, so I guess he's not going to be in my, my bailiwick, right? Or I make coal dirtier. That's probably not going to be a good fit. So I'm not going to do that. Um, but on the other hand, the, the solar panel guy, the, the, the aquaponics woman, whatever, Oh, Mark really likes this stuff. So I'm going to go to him first because I know he's not going to laugh me out of the conference room or off the Zoom call. And by the way, you know, not as many people are into this yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the selling tobacco to children, I'd be up for. But um, but the other stuff. uh, um, uh, So no, I think you're right. Look, uh, when you're raising money as an early stage founder, you have to find investors who get what you're trying to accomplish, understand it and can add value. Right. And. And, um, and I know we, we keep talking a bunch about me and that's great. Cause you know, I love talking about me. <laughs> um, he says sarcastically, <laughs> but this, my, you know, this group is, uh, you know, renewed venture capital is 70% women. 
like we're, we're white and black and brown and immigrant. Uh, um, uh, this isn't done by me. I can't do it. I mean, what you just mentioned, right? Do all those people, well, great. Uh, um, I don't see opportunity the way, uh, um, you know, the black women on my team would, or the way my, the, you know, Colombian immigrant on my team would. Yeah. Um, and I also can't connect to those founders in the way that they can, right? The, the more lived experience you have, the more empathy you have, uh, um, the more empathy you have, the more successful a business is going to be, the more successful a product is going to be. Uh, um, and so uh, another very important piece of it is that it's not just, you know, me, white dude, uh, um, as important as that is to have <laughs> the okay. white dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, he, he says that about talking about himself. It, it was easier. It was it was more plausible for me to get the Kremlin's battle plans for Ukraine than it was for me to get a bio out of you. So, um, but but thank you for coming through at the last second. Thanks. So, um, d- does impact investing either compel or lead you to think about risk differently than if you didn't have that filter? Uh, uh, so, another I mean, a complicated answer. Um, what the marketplace would say, what the ESG and what Goldman Sachs and their impact group, right, would say yeah. is that that's what it's all about. That yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's how that's how it works. I mean, what so you know, impact investing came out uh, um, in 2010. JP Morgan did this report, this research report, and they said, um, we think impact in the next decade, impact investing could be a trillion dollar asset class, <clears throat> right? And so, as asset class, that means like you buy your small cap stocks and your large cap stocks, and you buy some impact stuff, right? Right. Now it's a $40 trillion market. And so they were really wrong. <laughs> and so, so, but, but how they were wrong was that it's not an asset class. It's a lens. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's how you evaluate all the asset classes now, right? That's how Goldman, you know, impact metrics are a part of how Goldman Sachs evaluates every asset class it invests in. Uh, um, and once it becomes that the only, you know, Goldman Sachs can't run around talking about values, right? Like, the only context you can have to make a justi- justifiable decision about it then becomes risk adjusted return. And so all of it is about if they ran the risk adjusted return numbers and said it doesn't play, you, you'll do worse, right? Then they wouldn't make those decisions. So, um, so yes, it should lower risk. Now, the challenging part for me is risk adjusted return, number one, makes you again only care about return. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Which is complicated, right? Like we, you know, how, how do we get our kids to not lie? Yeah. We, we, we tell them that they, uh, you know, you'll be found out and I'll punish you and no one will like you. Right. So essentially fear and pride. And now I'm a grown up and pretty much the only reason I ever lie is fear and pride. And, and, and so like, if you, ju- if you just reinforce the bad thing in a different way, like that's not for a better outcome, it's not necessarily, necessarily productive. So, so, you know, when we, when we talk about, so when we talk about risk, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, uh, let, let's let's think for the moment. I'm going to put on my economist hat. You know, one of the one of the, the things about impact investing that I think I think di- can differentiate it and and maybe necessitates a, a mindset change <clears throat> is I, I think if I think if you're kind of outside the impact investing tribe, for lack of a better term, and there are probably nine better ones. The only one I can think of. You think about impact and financial returns in separate buckets. But I think I think an enlightened economist would say they're total return. You're just we just don't know how to measure the impact return yet, 
right? But there is some sort of utility. Now, now you're a real economist here. There's some sort of utility <laughs> function, yes, right? That's going to match up with an isoquant, right? That they're, they're going to overlap. That's going to that's going to match, you know, my desire for for overall return versus the availability of of risk adjusted investment opportunities, right? And so and so my 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 question is, or the uh, the follow up question is, is if you assume that premise that in fact almost almost by strict math impact investing must generate a higher total return even if only a sub-segment of that or a segment of that is pure financial return right and we know that the law of gravity in finance says that higher risk i'm sorry higher return only comes with higher risk otherwise you have an arbitrage opportunity assuming efficient markets ergo it must mean that you think about risk differently in order to pursue impact investing. And in fact, you must be willing to accept a somewhat higher or adopt a higher risk posture in order to make yourself or in order to lead yourself to make those investments. Otherwise, the economic narrative, otherwise you, it doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it means it means you almost have to re, reinvent an economic language. Yeah, so I mean, look, you're, really, you're really talking about two things. One is there has been an effort in the impact investing world to figure out how you monetize that quality, how you not monetize, sure. but how you systematize that qualitative piece of it, right? Sure. Um, and that's blended value. That's what folks have talked about, right? And and really, Jed Emerson was probably the lead on that. Okay. Um, who helped create that? Um, and that was a way to try to say, look, here's your, so we we can report to you. Here's your financial returns. Here's the social returns, and so then here's a blended profile. Uh, um. I don't know how much the marketplace has liked that. And honestly, it seems like, you know, I've been in plenty of financial, uh, plenty of, you know, uh, uh, investor return meetings where they're really engaged in the financial return part of that discussion <laughs> and, yep. and, they glaze, and they glaze a little on the social part. So, so n- number one, I don't, I, that's a, that's been a complicated part of the marketplace. Number two is the research says that that's not true. Like the research says that your risk, that your risk is lower by doing things like ESG, because what you've been doing in the past is not 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 uh, um, correctly evaluating the risks you were exposed to, right? And so you miss this environmental risk, which is going to cause you a whole bunch of brand damage, which is going to influence, which is going to change your marketplace, which is going to then you're going to get overregulated and you're going to have to address. Right? And so if we address all those, if we start including that risk into the model now, right? Now I, now I can make decisions that are less risky. And that the and the whole reason you make a decision that's less risky in that framework, right, is that um, is that it will redound to performance. Is that 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 lower risk will also give me some better performance. It's a weird, right? It's the opposite of what you normally think of as as. I mean, it's not an asset class discussion, right? So it's not a yep. uh, you you took more risk in venture capital, so it should get you higher returns. It's a, it's a it's a management of business question, right? Which is a little bit different. Um, the challenge for me is, and you know to bail on my, on my other answer. The challenge for, for me is that risk adjusted return is uh, um, really a hundred percent about time horizon. And that's part of what makes it so complicated too, is that if you, if you know, if you really feel like, you know, that you can destroy the environment like crazy for the next five years and then make a pivot right at that time and have it not hurt you all that much. And especially not hurt you, you know, and, and look, if your time horizon is only four years and all you care about is money, yep. right. Then awesome. Uh, um, and that's a, you know, so, so again, as a motivating factor for me, 
that's a that's awfully complicating. Um, and so I have to have some other driver of why I should do it. And I do have sort of values-based drivers for why I should do it. But all the data will say that it's actually res- less risky to adopt a, um, this kind of exposure. And 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 good. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And and there is a there is actually a logic to the narrative because uh, it, you know. You you quant you characterize ESG with as being social. I characterize it as sustainability, and I think I've heard it used both ways. But because because my way helps make my argument makes me sound smarter, I'm going to embrace <laughs> that. But if if but sustainability by definition is linked with risk, right? By definition, something that is unsustainable is going to be higher risk, right? And and and. To your point with long-term investing, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the dirty secrets about economics is that economics is great when you're talking about time frames that are measured in generations. Yeah, awesome. When, when you're talking in terms of, of calendar months, it, it, it really falls down quite a bit. And we've actually found that really since 2008, a lot of the things we knew were true in economics just aren't. And it's, it's really put the entire field into crisis. Um, but you know that that long term plan. This gets back into the filter, into the filter or the constraints causing you to be better too, because even because the data I've seen indicates that even if you don't have the impact angle, right? The that impact in itself makes you a better business. Simply adopting a long term posture, right, of ten to twenty years versus the typical VC time horizon of five to seven years. And it turns out the five to seven years is for most companies when they're just getting started to be interesting, right? Just that, again, being forced into that longer term time horizon forces you where the market wants you to go. It's like playing a game of chess and your play, your opponent plays a move and thinks he's got you, but he's forcing you to doing something you wanted to do anyway. Yeah, no. Uh, um, and I, I mean, find I that I- so elegant. Yeah, no, I, th- I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. That the, <clears throat> that the more you can integrate, uh, uh, sort of the future of, of what's, uh, of the, uh, well, it's like, it's more data, right? The more data you put into your model, essentially, right? I can yep. put in data for the next three years, or I can put in data for the next 20 years. Um, th- then probably the better decisions I'll make, right? Because I have more better data in the data set. And so, uh, um, so if I address, like we talked about, like the environment's always the easiest one because people can wrap their heads around it. If I, dra- if I, if I address those concerns now with a long-term view, I should be positioned better as we go through the changes we're going to go through. Right. And, it, and if my time horizon is only five years, I should exploit while I still have an opportunity, <laughs> right. For the next five years and like just yield as much as, as possible. Um, I, I just have to have a larger framework for why I think it should happen because that will help you make those. It's sort of like seeing the matrix then, right? It helps you make those decisions anyway. Um, we're talking with Mark Hubbard and the topic is, should I pursue impact investing? Um, how, how does, how does regulation play into the calculus of, of making an impact investment? Is it helpful? Does it stand in the way? Is it kind of just sort of there, but you don't care? How, how does it? How does that fit into your thinking? Um, well, I, you know, reg, regulation and f- really future regulation yep. right, is how how most people in this world would think about it. Yep. Um, fair. Uh, uh, absolutely 
plays into it. I mean, it's part of the determining factor for all of it is that when you look at larger trends and you say, these are things that are going to need to be handled and uh, by nature, some portion of that handling will be, will happen through governments. Uh, um, then there right. will be future regulation of one kind or another. And the better I position for that now, right. Then, then the better my business will probably be able to run. Um, and so regardless of whether or not you like the regulation or not, Right. The, the idea that that um, that you can prepare ahead of time by operating under the idea that those regulations are coming uh, um, has paid off. And that, that's part of the ESG you know, framework that they argue for. Um, it's part of why they say they tend to do better is because as, as you lower the risk, as you adjust for the future of what you're going to have to face from a regulatory environment. Uh, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it actually presents sort of an opportunity for us and we're only investing in things that would probably fit those regulatory frameworks well anyway yeah uh, and so yeah it's a, it's a it's a a plus for us regardless of whether you you know you think that's the way to solve problems or not now a, a question i want to make sure i i get in we're, we're running out of time here but i do want to get in give you a chance to comment on it is you know some many of our listeners are most of them are not they're not fund managers like you are. They may have their own portfolios, but many of them are, are also business owners. They have their business thing that they do. And as you and I both know, when you're a small business, most of your investable wealth is the, is the business where you're actually working every day. <laughs> um, uh, what advice could you give to them to think about how they might make an impact investing work for their own businesses? Hmm. Um, yeah, so I think there's sort of two levels for them, right? One level is the investable assets they have, and there's lots of resources for that now, Yep. right? You can go uh, anywhere. There's lots of places to learn. There's lots of nonprofits and industry associations and, um, every asset manager now has ESG portfolios. At least there's indexes, there's low cost ways to do it. There's alpha ways to do it. There's funds, venture capital funds you can invest in, um, so that is that is one piece, and really, that's just an argument for it. You know, j- just say to yourself, "What what do I feel like is? It, um, what are my personal values? What are the kinds of things I'd like to see happen in the world? Uh, um, and if I'd like to see more of that, then I'm going to start voting with my dollars to make that happen. Right? And by the way, you can be reassured by the fact that the research says you're going to do just fine. Right? In fact, you'll probably yeah. do better. Uh, um, the next part is the business, right? If you're, if you're running a business or employing a business or, uh, um, uh, then you're, you know, you're, you're inside one of the, of the machines. And so there's an opportunity to do the same thing, essentially, you know, go to your bosses or look at your company that you founded and own and, and say, does this thing reflect what I say I believe about the world? And does it reflect what my employees say they believe about the world? And, um, and if not, how do I, go about arranging things so that it's, it's more integrated than it has been in the past. I mean, there's, and again, lots of frameworks that are possible. I mean, B, B Corp, B Labs, you know, you can go, they have a great little great framework. And so you can go through that framework and, and, and address all kinds of different categories. Uh, um, uh, but I think we're at a moment when that's what people want to do, feel like they have to do. Um, and I think it's going to be a good thing for all of us. Mark, this has been a, a great conversation, but I, I have to let you go back to to making the impact that you always do. But I, I know there we didn't get to all the questions I had prepared, which I anticipated. But 
there are probably questions that that the listeners would have wished that I had asked or wished that we would have stayed longer on. If somebody wants to continue this conversation with you offline, can they do that? And if so, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Uh, um, uh, renewvc.com is the website. Uh, um, at the moment, there's just there's about to be a full site launch, but at the moment, there's a form up there. So you could contact me there um, on Twitter, MW Hubby. So, yeah, no, I, I, uh, uh, the, the future in my and my argument is that the future of founders, the future of funders is all community. It's all going to be community from now on. And so, uh, yeah, we want to talk to and engage and, and work with anybody that um, has an interest in this. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Mark Hubbard so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also check out my new LinkedIn group, Unblakeable's group that doesn't suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. <laughs>